Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good. Finding an onion ring in your french fries good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payments system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree, rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Okay, everybody, welcome to the show. Today, I'm really excited to have Michael Lewis, best selling author, journalist, and I guess at this point, we can call you a, a Hollywood muse, right? The Hollywood Muse? Yeah, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> I don't think they call me the Hollywood Muse. I don't know. I mean, between you know, you've all your books from the Big Short to the Blind Side to Moneyball um, have become you know Hollywood blockbusters, and I think even more so, you're really good at taking esoteric, complex issues and turn them into, um, I guess you'd call them mainstream touchstones. It's pretty incredible, Michael. Um, how do you choose a subject to write? I mean, you you find these really great kind of treasures out there. How did you decide to give your full attention to, to something? Um, it usually takes a while. I don't, uh, I mean, it's going to sound odd, but I don't really go looking for stories. I think as, as much as stories come find me, uh, the, um, I'll give you an example. Let's take Moneyball. Uh, I, you know, I, I, it began with an idle curiosity, which was, you know how do how does a team that has no money compete against a team that has some money? That idle curiosity led me to finally pick up a phone and call a magazine editor and say, "Let me go see if I can write something about what these people are doing." And I went and spent a couple of days with Billy Bean at spring training in the Oakland A's, and what they were doing was so interesting that I basically called the magazine editor and said, "This is too interesting for a magazine piece. It's probably going to be a book." <laughs> um, and and the you know, it's it's usually starts with some something that catches my eye in the newspaper, or something someone says to me, or I get in, you know it, it can happen. It, it can be as as uh, unlikely a beginning as someone at a dinner party saying something, but um, but I don't. They're accidental. I'm not. I don't think. Oh, I need to write about this issue or this world or you know you know this environment. It's more usually starts with a person that, that who's doing something that interests me. I feel like Moneyball has become a popular trope, and it's, I've heard people Moneyballing uh, Broadway and Moneyballing business and Moneyballing Hollywood. And I recently did a story with Jared Kushner from the Trump administration. He told me, in quote, like, we Moneyballed the election. Uh, does that surprise you that it kind of leapt off the page and became you know, such a, a, a big thing in business? Um, you can never uh, be anything but surprised when a book becomes gets kind of – jumps out of its covers and has that life. Uh, however, when I was working on it, the thing that got me so jazzed was I saw all these other connections to other things. I mean, once you start with a very general idea that 
um, that you can, using better data, you can find inefficiencies in a market and exploit them. I mean, there's nothing that can't be used in. And I did have a sense when I was working on the book that the sports analogy was so compelling that, you know, business people and political people generally love having a sports analogy to make their <laughs> lives seem more interesting than they actually are. That, it, that it, it, it didn't shock me when people started to grab for it. Um, and it, it, it's, I mean, they, the Oakland A's just happened to be in the right place at the right time in the culture. It, it, what they were doing was very innovative, and they were using tools that would only get more and more powerful, mainly data analytics tools, computing power. Uh, so that, that what they were doing was bound to have some consequences outside of baseball. Well, you're a Berkeley guy. Were you an A's fan to begin with? Um, and did you have any idea that they were doing this, or you just wanted to investigate at first what was going on? You know, I was an A's fan to begin with, but it had nothing to do with being a Berkeley guy because I'd only moved out here in 98. We okay. bought a house in Berkeley in 98, 99. Um, I had, when I was in high school, I was, a, I was a pitcher on my high school baseball team. And when I was, I don't know, I guess it was a freshman or a sophomore, uh, our coach turned up and he came from the Oakland A's farm system. His name was Billy Fitzgerald. Huh. And he had just come. He'd been in double A and he'd had a shot at making the big leagues. He was certainly a big league caliber catcher. He just didn't hit very well. And he'd come with uh, Gene Tennis's mitt and he'd f- just finished catching Catfish Hunter and Raleigh Fingers. And he persuaded me. He was an unbelievable salesman. He persuaded yeah. me I was the second coming of Catfish Hunter. And so from that moment on, of course I was an A's fan. I, I, I started following the A's religiously. We didn't have a team in New Orleans, and so the A's became my team. So they, were all, they, they always occupied a place in my imagination. They got you early. When you, wrote the, when you were selling the book, did you pitch it as a sports book or as a business book or a little bit of both? I can remember uh, exactly the moment I wrote my editor and said, I think I have a book here, and I pitched it as – uh, not just one, but two baseball books. I said, and I said it's going to be awkward because you, I've never written about sports, um, and you're going to have to figure out how this connects to the audience that you think I have. Uh, but I thought I thought of it very much in the beginning as how could it be anything but a baseball book? Yeah. But you know, I knew it, it was a baseball book that had that that was about markets, but nevertheless, it was a baseball book, and uh, and. Uh, I, I, it, it actually worried me a little bit because I thought, who's going to want to read anything by me about baseball? Well, that, luckily you were proven wrong. And the good news with this is it kind of kept on paying dividends. So through Moneyball led to your latest book, The Undoing Project. I want to hear a little bit about this. How did this project come about, this, this new bestseller? So this is absolutely true. Moneyball, Moneyball led also to uh, the blind side in a weird way. Uh, but Moneyball has been the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, in the, w- what happened was, I saw when Moneyball came out, uh, here I'd written this story about how these baseball players were misvalued uh, and that this team would figure out how to value them better and was basically functioning as a really smart arbitrageur in, mm-hmm. the, in the market for baseball players. And there's a review of the book by um, a behavioral economist named Richard Thaler and a legal scholar named Cass Sunstein. They reviewed it together. And they said, 
you know, the story is interesting and all that, but basically it's just one long illustration of principles that were elucidated by two Israeli psychologists named Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who showed what the human mind is doing and the mistakes it's making when it's making judgments under uncertainty, like judgments about any kind of investment or decision, but the judgments about who's a good baseball player. And I was shocked that there was this intellectual underpinning that I had not even been aware of and started to educate myself on the writings of Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky and then found pretty quickly, it took me a while to get conviction about my ability to write it, but pretty quickly that there was this great emotional and interesting drama about the exploration of the human mind that these two guys had engaged in in the 70s and early 80s and indeed uh, was the basis of Moneyball. I mean, the, the, the Oakland A's front office was very aware of behavioral economics and they thought in terms of biases, like what are the biases in the marketplace we're exploiting? Mm-hmm. But that, that, that very idea that a market could be biased because a mind could be biased because minds generally would be biased, grows out of Kahneman and Tversky's work. So I felt I missed a trick. And then I realized that not only did I miss a trick, but there was this whole body of material that was worthy of like long nonfiction treatment. When you first uh, read read their studies and their papers, did it jump out at you like, wow, this is exactly what Moneyball was? Or did, you, did it take a while to think that first book review was just a overthought, over-academic review of a, of a sports book? Um, or did, did Danny and uh, Amos's writing just jump out at you right away? I, 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 when, I, when I got to their writing, it jumped out at me right away. I mean, it was just, I mean, there are, these are, with their writing, are academic pa- papers. And while they're very well done academic papers, they're still academic papers. So it wasn't like reading, I don't know, Stephen King. Uh, it, that I, it, was, it was hard going. However, the idea, it was really clear that the ideas were, weren't just, the ideas that led to Moneyball, but they were the ideas that led to, I don't know, indexing on Wall Street and evidence-based medicine and lots of other places in the world where basically human judgment was being supplanted by by algorithms or by statistical-based thinking. Um, so it was really clear that these ideas were – they still. the odd thing was these were papers are written in the – the first one's written in 1969. The last original one is kind of in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And they still felt fresh. I mean I, I still – I read them with a sense of wonderment like, oh my god, these are really general things about the way the human mind works. So yes, I, I was – it instantly connected up to Moneyball, and I know I didn't think the intellectuals had exaggerated the case. And I saw you, you started writing articles about Danny Kahneman in around 2011. When did you decide that this be, this was a book, and when did you get to work on it? I, I met Kahneman and started basically hanging out with him uh, at the end of '07. Uh-huh. Uh, so, and I started beavering away in Amos Tversky's archives in 2008. And I and I went to Israel. I made five trips to Israel, each a week or longer. And the wow. first one of those was in 2008. It, but it wasn't until it wasn't until 2000 and maybe 10 that I confessed to my publisher I was thinking about this again. Kind of like I confessed I was going to write about baseball. I thought I've got this story that's basically a love story between two psychologists who you've never heard of. I thought they thought I was they were going to say I was crazy, uh-huh. and they didn't say I was crazy. They encouraged me. But I had my own hesitations about it. I, I, I was hesitant about my own ability to get it across and my own qualifications for getting it across. And so it wasn't until I'd say it was – I wrote what I published Flash Boys in 2014. 
I used that as a great distraction. Uh, so I did that instead of this. Um, I, I really didn't probably get conviction about it until 2013, 2014. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're all fans of something. Me, I'm a fan of cooking shows. But with absolutely everything changing about the way we consume culture, the way fandom works is changing too. I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast about exactly that change. It's called Fan Club, presented by Viacom, and it's about why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on Earth. Ross has dedicated his career to marketing and innovation and entertainment. Named one of Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business and a three-time Emmy winner to boot, Ross has continually explored fandom through his work at Viacom, home of Comedy Central, MTV, Nickelodeon, BET, and so many more iconic brands and shows that you love. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure out the future of how we're going to watch, listen, and consume culture. He talks to a slew of amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced experience today and how they think it will be experienced in the years to come. Fan Club will change the way you think about things you love. Subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you're listening to this show. The book is fascinating because you said it's three stories. It's this, this, love, this love affair um, between two you know, genius psychiatrists, the actual work they do in the psych- psychology, but then also I, was always, I really enjoyed kind of the history of the the nation of Israel with all with, with the wars and the social constructs it's you know three stories in one how do you kind of pack that into one book and how do you kind of switch your brain um, to you know cover each different chapter so I would say there's a fourth story also going on and that is the consequences of their ideas yes. which is threaded through the book it opens the book in the Houston Rockets front office where they're essentially grappling with Kahneman Tversky problems. And it and we and it's and it's revisited when we're in a trauma center in Toronto with yeah. a doctor who's trained with him who's trying to prevent doctors from making from killing people with misjudgments. Um, so there were that and that fourth story was the hardest to, to weave in because mm-hmm. the, the the relationship between the two men, their uh, backdrop of Israel, uh, this was all just totally organic to the work. I mean, the work grew out of that place and their relationship. So mm-hmm. that it, 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 it was it was not. I found that very easy and natural to write. The part that I thought was hard, but I thought was necessary, but I knew that readers might just like have a little skip in their brains when they hit it was when I left them and, you know, for in the middle of the book for 30 pages inside a trauma center in Toronto, Canada, um, that that would be jolting and jarring. Uh, But but there were so I didn't have I didn't even think of it as, oh, I've got these three stories, Israel, uh, their relationship and their ideas because Israel, their relationship and their ideas were so interwoven already. I just didn't have to worry very, very much about it. By the way, just to clarify, we said love affair, but it wasn't that, it's not romance. It's- what you mean is it's not sex. That's yes, correct. Exactly. When you write like a book with four stories, do you outline it pretty hard? Do you structure it or you kind of just write it and see where the, the pieces fall? Mm, I, 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 I obsessively outline it. Uh, I outline it from the moment, so I started. I would bet. I bet I started outlining this book in two thousand and nine, before I even knew I had a book. I started trying to lay out and think how do we, how would this work? How would this story be told? And so I go over and over and over. And I don't start writing until I think I know 
I don't write the first sentence until I think I know what the last sentence is. Uh-huh. Um, now, that all sounds nice. It's like yes. Mike Tyson's <laughs> line, like everybody has a plan until they get hit. Uh, the the you, Once you start writing, things happen. You realize stuff doesn't work and stuff should, could be left out without any ill effects. And, oh, you there's stuff that needs to be here. And so the outline, it serves as a guide, but it ends up being – you know, disposable. Um, and and so it does the, – the difference between the outline and the book, it's not – while not shocking, is noticeable to me in the end. Um, but I can't – I don't feel com- comfortable, comfortable starting unless I think I know how it goes. How do you outline? Do you have – is it on a piece of paper? Is it note cards? Is there like a, a Michael Lewis war room at home with uh, stuff on the walls and strings? How, how does that work? Yes, this close to a war room. <laughs> it's it's a little redwood cabin in the hills of Berkeley, and I, although, although I'm completely unarmed except for pens, uh, I have what I what I, I usually just start by having one file in my computer, and it's just all notes from every interview, every observation, everything I've read. It's, and it ends up, you know, at some point it gets to two or three hundred pages long, and then I th- and then I start thinking, how does this story go? And it starts on my computer where I break everything down into chapters. But in the end, actually, it ends up in manila folders all over the floor of my office. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I do storyboard it in a way. I do think about how – what is this char- – what, what's happening to each character from beginning to end? Where do they meet? Where do – you know, where do the important moments happen mm-hmm. in their relationship? So I do lay it out. I do plot it out. And um, – and it's it's uh, I, I wouldn't know how you know books are. It's funny. I I don't I don't know how anybody could sit down and write a book. I I sit down and I write pieces of books, little pieces of books, mm-hmm. and glue them all together. That's that's the process for me. Uh, a book is just such a daunting thing that it has to to me has to be broken down into pieces in order to even try it. And when you write when you write big uh, uh, magazine features, same kind of process. Yes, uh, uh, but the shorter it is the more comfortable I get with less planning. So, um, uh, but anything longer than three or 4,000 words, it definitely has a really, like, thought-out outline. Uh, but yes, I do think, I do think outline. I, I think I structure, you know, structure has, the structure of a piece of writing has enormous effects on the way the reader experiences the writing. Sure. And, and they might not even know why they feel the way they feel. But it is having an effect on how they feel, so you can't neglect it. And uh, and so I just do think I, I spend more time thinking, much more time thinking about the structure of the book than I do about the particular words on the page. And with this one, with the Undoing Project, you know, one of your your main characters, and maybe some might argue the most exciting character, Amos Tversky. You never met him; he died before the you know the, you ever heard about these two guys. How did you write a book when one of the main characters was wasn't there? Well, I said earlier that one of my one I had I had these mental objections to me writing the book, and that was one of them because I'd never had a dead character before. And uh, a funny thing happened; uh, he was. He, if he had been a different sort of character, maybe I wouldn't have written the book. But he had this preternatural quality to do only what he wanted to do, mm-hmm. to save only what he wanted to save in the way of pieces of paper or whatever, anything in his life, and uh, to and to have made very, very, very vivid impressions on everyone he met. So I had, uh, in a funny way, 
um, these very clear signals coming to me from the grave. Mm -hmm. Everything he saved in his file drawers, he saved because it meant something to him. Uh, The memories of him were very clear because they were so vivid. And the uh, and everything, every move he made in his life, every decision he made, I knew it, he had thought about it and he'd done it exactly the way he wanted to do it. So there was all signal, no noise. Every example you mentioned of him is memorable. I, what stands out to me is you said when he wanted to go for a run, instead of putting on sweatpants, he would just take off all his clothes and run down the street in his underwear. Well, so uh, that's the one fact disputed by his wife. Oh, okay. uh, and it's fu- you know it's funny because <laughs> his daughter, his daughter and sons told me that. And now we've agreed that it's possible that he only that when he took off all his clothes, he only ran in his underwear on the home treadmill, and that but that and that we just do is run out in his the street in his clothes when he was uh, when he's going for an outdoor run. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm still I'm a little unclear on that still. But the but but it is true that you know like he, you know a lot of people thought him was rude because he just wouldn't he wouldn't listen to fools he wouldn't stay in meetings he thought was stupid yeah. he'd tell people that if you're if you're he, he says if you find yourself at a at a party or a board meeting or something and you and you you can't figure out how to get out of it he says just get up and leave <laughs> if you get up and leave it's amazing how when your feet are moving your mind will dream up the reason why you're leaving so and he would just do this uh so he he had no it was almost as if he sensed his life was going to be shortened and so he had to make the most of it but in any case the point is that he he was he really was a kind of person who could who was telling you who he was all the time. Now uh, most people aren't like that. And if it had been reversed, and Amos was the one who lived, and Danny who di- had died, mm-hmm. I'd have had a hell of a time trying to recreate Danny Kahneman. That uh, he's because he's a lot of noise in with the signal. Gotcha. And I just w- I just would I would have had a hard time getting a feel for him. And, and kind of sweet, on, on the same topic of getting the feel for for things, uh, I was talking to a Wall Street buddy of mine who's a big that I was going to do a podcast with you, and he's like, Michael Lewis is a genius about taking these so it's like such complex things, whether it's um, you know cybermetrics and Moneyball, or you know short selling in the Big Short, obviously, um, and you know high frequency trading and Flash Boys, and he makes it so makes it mainstream. How do you take these kind of wonky esoteric things? And make it so you know a common person like me understands it and actually is wants to read about it. Well, you know, it's for me, it's the opposite of genius. That it's that I don't, if I don't understand it, I'm not satisfied. So it really is pestering and bothering people, usually who are people who are speaking in jargon. This is especially true with Wall Street to lay it out and explain it to me so I actually understand it. So from the point of view of my subjects, if you told them I was a genius, they say, no, 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 you don't understand. He's a fool. <laughs> He's an idiot. We had, to, we had to explain it to him 600 times before he understood it. And, uh, and that's, you know, it's when you know, I think with it, and I think it's this, when you get in the habit of ha- as, a, as a job of having to explain things to people, and that's part of my job, you realize when you're sitting with someone who's giving you a complicated and sometimes convoluted explanation of something complicated that you can't leave the room until you can explain it in simple language because you're not going to be able to explain it when you sit down to write about yeah. it. And it's very unsatisfying when you can't explain what you're trying to write about to the reader. So I do try to imagine my mother understanding it, but it's more also me. I just – if I feel I can explain it to someone, leave, leave the conversation explain it to my kids – I'm I'm in good shape, and uh, and it is. Um, I do get jazzed. I think the other thing might be that I do get jazzed by people 
who can explain things well. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the characters I choose, a lot of them are just beautiful explainers of things, beautiful teachers. And I, 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 so I'm using their explanatory gifts and, and sort of disguising them as my own. Yeah, Brad Katsuyama from IX, put him in front of a whiteboard. It's a, it's a magical thing. You know, it is absolutely true that when Brad Katsuyama gets on stage and explains how high-frequency trading works, how the stock market works, it's mesmerizing. Now, how I would say it's also true that before I met him, when he was just talking to industry people, he would have been incompre- incomprehensible to someone outside the industry. So, but, but when you force him to speak to someone who doesn't really understand, he's great at it. Uh, and so he did all my work for me. <laughs> You must get pitched so many ideas. Um, I bet people, people must be coming out of the woodwork saying, like, oh, I have, a, I have such a great story for you. You should do a book on this. You should do an article on this. How do you turn down the noise, and how do you decide when an idea is worth uh, following? Well, there are a lot of emails and phone calls I just don't answer. That's one way of dealing with it. It's true that people are always telling me. Usually, what they're saying is write about my problem. Yeah, or talk. Like, or I talk got my screwed book by. I got yeah. I got screwed by the courts or by some broker brokerage firm or whatever or my wife. <laughs> and it's an amazing story if only you told it. Yeah. Uh, I've already not interested in the person. So like, how is that going to work out? Um, and uh, and so that, that's easy. A lot of it, like, I can just dismiss. It is true that I don't want to make the other kind of error uh, where I don't, you know, it's, I don't want to let a lot of things in that are just going to not be useful. It's just a waste of time. But in building the defenses against, like, the world's need to have stories told about themselves, um, I, I do risk not letting things in that would be very good stories. And I'll give you an example. Um when I was working on The Big Short and I was finishing it, uh, Danny Moses, who's one of the characters in The Big Short, said, I got your next book for you. And I instantly went, yeah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And, I, and he told me about Brad Katsuyama. Who had, and he said, this guy has walked into our office and has explained what's, how the stock market has gotten rigged in the last year. And it's the most, and we understand now what's going on, the weird things that are going on with our stock market orders. And I went, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I just ignored it. And it was only, it was three years later when I came back to it for a different reason. I remember that conversation. Uh, so that the, the, I am perfectly capable of listening to someone give me a brilliant book idea and not seeing it as a brilliant. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. This is Norman Lear with my great sidekick, Paul Hip. Good to be here with you, Norman. On All of the Above. That's the name of my podcast, All of the Above. And uh, it's called All of the Above because we're going to talk about All of the Above. There isn't anything sacrosanct. There's nothing too above us or uh, below or us. Or below us. Well, certainly nothing too below us. But we have had guests you cannot believe. Yeah. Guests. Julie Louis-Dreyfus, amazing. Yes. And America Ferrara. Jared Carmichael. Yes. Oh, Amy Poehler. How did we overlook? We didn't overlook Amy Poehler. I was saving her for last. And Charles Barkley, I was saving him for first, actually, because I didn't declare her first. I get to hang out with this guy. 
And this is your chance to hang out with Norman Lear a little bit here and some of these great guests. God, I wish I was you hanging out with Norman Lear. Yeah. <laughs> Son of a gun. See? That must be exciting. It's the yeah. best. He's, I'm telling you. Don't miss all of the above with Norman Lear. Download new episodes every week on the Podcast One app or subscribe at podcastone.com. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Are you aware of the phenomenon called social spending? Using a service like Venmo, people can, for example, split the cost of a night out or send a birthday gift or just connect with friends through a shared economy. It's a new way of looking at spending. Currently in limited release with just a couple lines of code, Braintree lets your business accept Venmo. It's another example of the opportunities that open up when you rethink payments. Braintree. Rethink Payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. So much of the Undoing Project is about the psychology of regret. And, you know, every great investor has that company they passed up on. This, I mean, you got Brad Katsuyama and IEX at the end. Any other stories that really got away that kind of you wish yes. you could have done? Yeah, no, there's one that irks me to this day. And it was my own idiocy that cost me the story. In 1991, 92, about then, I flew around Eastern Europe in a private plane with George Soros. Hmm. He was, I don't know if you remember this, but he was busy building his, essentially trying to create the structures for for democratic societies in former Soviet uh, states. And it it, it was mesmerizing. He was mesmerizing and his business was mesmerizing to me. And he was prepared to let me write a book about him. And then like a fool, I wrote an article for the New Republic that ticked him off yeah. was it about, about, about him. About him, yeah. It was about him. And he was hypersensitive about to criticism, especially about his intellectual life. And I poked a little – there was an admiring piece, but I poked a little fun at it. Uh-huh. He didn't think it was funny and he just washed his hands of me. And that was such a, that was such a mistake uh, to have written that piece because the book could have been great. Uh, and uh, the story just never got co- told. You know, and that's what happens. The story just doesn't get told, uh, and that's just that. That's the one that bothers me the most. Your first book, Liar's Poker, you wrote it as a you know criticism of Wall Street and a critique of Wall Street, and probably you know I think you said before a warning to um, people going into the business. Um, I t- had a Liar's Poker like internship and training program at uh, a bank back in the day, and people were reading Liar's Poker as if it was. Uh, how like a how-to manual or a celebration. Um, and I think Oliver Stone said the same thing about the movie Wall Street, that instead of a warning sign, it drew people in. Why was that the case, do you think? Well, because it wasn't really written as a warning about Wall Street. It was written as a, it was a young man. I was 27 when I wrote that book, and 24 to 27 when I experienced the things in the book, that I was just trying to make sense of an experience that seemed senseless. It seemed bizarre and curious and funny and... I mean, disturbing in some ways, but not deeply disturbing to me. Uh, and and so I didn't – I wasn't aiming to like bring down Wall Street. I was aiming to tell a story of my experience uh-huh. and really in a pretty plain way. And so, uh, it, that, so as a result, it could be interpreted however you wanted to interpret it. So it was surprising to me in, in the very beginning that people took it as a how-to manual. But I shouldn't have been as surprised as I was. But the power, to the extent the book works, it only works because I wasn't trying to write this critique. Uh, it that I was just trying to tell a story. It makes it fun and interesting. That the minute you start to like manipulate what the reader should think about any particular situation, uh, that you start to lose the reader. Even readers who are sympathetic, it's just boring. You have to, you have to leave the reader with room to make to make the book their own book and their own story. 
And the the best books are like that. And so that, uh, in, a, in a way, it's, I think it's the, one of the strengths of that book in the end is that people can do with it what they want. Um, and I, I was lucky that I didn't have a great urge to editorialize. Mm-hmm. I, did, I did find my own situation totally preposterous, and that becomes clear. But, you know, if you're, uh, if you're enamored of the idea of making a lot of money doing shuffling paper around, I can see how you'd read it and think it's a great romance. Was that your title that you came up with, or was that the editor or the publisher? Mine. Mine, but I have still have some folder with uh, 60 really crappy titles on it. Uh, and he picked it out of a list. Huh. So, uh, so I, I don't know. I didn't just say, oh, in the case of Moneyball, in case of The Blind Side, in the case of The Big Short, in the case of The New New Thing, the title popped into my head and I said, this is the title. Ah, interesting. Um, in, in the, and, and also in the case of The Undoing Project. In the case of uh, Liar's Poker, I said, I don't know what the hell I'm going to call this thing. Here's 60, here's 60 possible titles. Pick one. Uh, so that's, that's how that happened. Do you, um, do you still f- follow Wall Street culture? You know, uh, through friends who were there, mainly. Every book I write about Wall Street, that's the last one I'll ever write about Wall Street. <laughs> and uh, and it may I may be done. It's On the other hand, I may not be done. Because I have, like with sports, because of Liars Poker and the Big Short and Flash Boys... Because of Moneyball, because of Moneyball on the Blind Side, I can I can just get to stories, and so if some great story arises there, I might re-enter. But I don't keep my finger on the pulse. I live in California. I got three little kids. You know, there's too many other things going on. I just I but I watch. I watch like everybody. Watches. What's what are you seeing now? What you're watching? Probably including uh, our new president. So I'm guessing there's a large faction of Wall Street that is personally just totally appalled by mm-hmm. the president. That they think he's they 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 knew him as a they knew him as a second tier third tier real estate de- developer in New York and they didn't trust him, and they they so they aren't they they personally they would be appalled by him, and private and but they're I bet also thinking at the same time, this guy's going to let us off the leash, and this is great, so uh, let's encourage him. Uh, I I think so. What did I think they think of him? I think they all think they're smarter than he is. Every single one of them. I think they all think they can probably manipulate him. And you see that going on. You see these Wall Street people who wouldn't have given Donald Trump the time of day and thought he was a kind of a crackpot two years ago, uh, kind of sidling up to him. So I, I don't and, – and, and he's, he is easily, he's easily sold, yeah. right? You would know how to sell him. Flatter him. Flatter him. Tell him how great he is, how big his hands are or whatever <laughs> you need to tell him. And, uh, and then ask for Dodd-Frank to be destroyed. Uh, and and so I, that's what I think is going on. And you you're a Bay Area guy, and you said you've you know you're 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 tied up with other things over there, and you've already written books on Silicon Valley and innovation. Every time I go out there, it kind of blows my mind even more. What what are you seeing? What's your prediction? Is is Silicon Valley the the new Wall Street in terms of uh, an industry to be exposed for its good and its bad? Well, you know, it's different. It's different from Wall Street, and there actually are barriers to entry. That you know, to create a tech company, you do have to know something, and uh, whereas there are no barriers to entry on Wall Street, you can just wander in. Uh, so that, it means that there's a filter yeah. here, and it ends up being heavily oriented towards people who code and and often have kind of you know limited social abilities. Uh, and so it's just a different scene. It's the opposite, you know. The the the, the people on Wall Street, it's a sales culture. Basically, even even when it's technocratic, it's a sales yep. culture. 
and uh, and there are you know you 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 really don't need any particular skills. So um, what do I think? So I I, don't, I never think think of Silicon Valley as like replacing Wall yeah. Street. Uh, in in the minds of people like me coming out of college, because I could never have gone to Silicon Valley. Um, I do think that as like material, for not for me, but it's clearly you know it's it's at the it's one of those places like the financial system that's at the center of the society. What happens with techno the innovation that goes on in Silicon Valley has endless unlimited consequences. And the people there are interesting in their own ways. I find them hard to write about, uh, but other people do a better job of it. And uh, so I do think that it's like one of those arenas of American ambition that will that bears paying attention to all the time. Yeah, you said you know you mentioned bear of entry, but I think the same the same guys and girls we went to school with back in the day that wanted to go to Wall Street and be bankers, they still want to go to Silicon Valley now. Maybe not as founders, but the whole, maybe do a startup or sales. It's very interesting. It's kind of grabbed the imagination of what I think Wall Street was for people in the you know eighties and nineties and e- even early knots. It's 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 fascinating to watch. Yeah, and it's easier to justify. I mean, you can ar- make an argument to yourself that you are. It's a much easier argument to make that while you're do- getting rich, you're also doing good. That you're also you're you're, you're part of progress. Whereas it's harder to sell yourself on that idea on Wall Street. You can do it. Anybody can talk themselves yeah. into anything. But but it's it's just an easier it's an easier sell to any kid who's got a shred of idealism in him. If what would a twenty two year old Michael Lewis do right now coming out of coming out of college? <laughs> you know, um, I I don't have first clue because I didn't know what t- I was going to do when I was twenty two. <laughs> Me neither. I still don't. Right. So. Uh, I become. I'd be, it would be the the environment um, that that everything the things that happened to me before college would have been so different. Who knows? I you know I don't have any particular technical inclination. I can't put together my kids' Christmas presents. So uh, that that I don't think I would have been. You know, I don't. I would have naturally drifted into technology or Silicon Valley. Um, if I had um, the same writer passion. If I somehow had emerged from our educational system now with the same writer passion I had mm-hmm. back then, I think there's a fair chance I would have gone instantly to try to get a job writing on a TV show because te- television has gotten so interesting. I mean, I think I'd be, I, I think I'd be steeped in 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 uh, te- television writing and television culture, and would think what I want to do is create the next uh, the Amer- the Americans or The Wire or the Sopranos, one of these great series, that that would be my ambition. Uh, that that wouldn't surprise. What are you binging me. on right now? Well, I'm still watching Homeland uh, as it comes out. Uh, I watch. Uh, you know what's funny? I binge on Saturday Night yeah. Live now. I haven't watched Saturday Night Live in years. I can't not watch it. it they're 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 an emotional and psychological defense against the Trump administration. Um, the uh, I watch uh, I I've, I've watched I had my hip operated on a few weeks ago and while I was laying in bed I watched the first three seasons of The Americans. It is unbelievably good. Um, what else? You know, it's another one. It has been off the air for a little bit, but it'll come back. And for some reason, every time I say it, I get a blank stare in response. But everybody should watch it. Vice Principals, Danny uh, McBride's uh, comedy one, on HBO. Yeah. Oh my God. This guy's a genius. Eastbound and Down was also a work oh, yeah. of genius. But, and it, 
it's uh so i watch you know there's a long list but there's those are some of the greatest hits we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back this show is brought to you by a new podcast called Fan Club, presented by Viacom and hosted by Ross Martin. We're all fans of something. Me, I'm a fan of cooking shows. But with everything changing about the way we consume culture, the nature of fandom is changing too. I want to tell you about an awesome new podcast about exactly that change. It's called Fan Club, and it's about why we love what we love. In each episode, you'll hear from amazing, brilliant people across a pop culture landscape. Musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it will be experienced in the future. Subscribe to Fan Club now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you listen to podcasts. Speaking of writing, how did you get Liar's Poker published? Because it's really tough to be a first-time writer, um, especially writing a kind of a memoir as a, a, lo- a lower Wall Street drone, if you will. How did that? How did you get that done? Well, the genre didn't exist when I wrote it, right? If you go back, there wasn't other Liar's Poker before me where I thought, oh, I'll write a book like that. So the publishing industry didn't have, oh, he can write a book like that. What happened was... Um, I was writing magazine pieces under a pseudonym while I was at Solomon Brothers. I was writing them so I didn't piss off Who my you bosses. For? Uh, and, uh, the okay. New Republic. The New Republic and then a couple of British magazines, which are defunct now. They don't exist. But, uh, and the New Republic published a piece by me under my mother's maiden name. And Chevy Chase's uh, father was an editor at Simon huh. & Schuster. His name was Ned Chase. Figured out who Diana Bleeker really was. That's the name I wrote under. And called me up in London and said, I read this piece. You should write a book about this. And about the same time, some agent called me up and said, I'll represent you. Really, there's a market for a book about you know, a young man on hmm. Wall Street. And I, went, I trundled myself around uh, nervously to New York and London publishers. And uh, for not very much money, two publishers said, well, we'll publish you. But uh, the interesting thing is the proposal to the Liar's Poker had very little to do with me. I was telling I, – I, I had kind of a dry history of Wall Street in my in my head. And then I started writing it and I thought, Jesus, the stuff that happened to me is much more interesting than any stuff I proposed. I wrote a chapter to sent it to my editor at W.W. Norton. He said, yeah, forget the proposal. Just keep doing this. Uh, so it, it, I, I kind of crawfished my way into the book I wrote. It wasn't the book I'd set out to write when I sold it. Um, and – uh, it, it, and it was, um, it was you know, a little accidental. But you have to remember that, I mean, in 1980, when was it, 87, 88, when I sold the book, that, that Wall Street was, that was becoming the Wall Street we know all now know and love. But it was still really mm-hmm. bizarre that kids like me were getting paid all this money. Nobody understood what was going on. All they knew was all the entire graduating classes of Harvard, Princeton, Yale wanted to go work there. And uh, and that it was turning the world on its head in some way and money and making money in ways they never made money before. So there was enormous hunger for any kind of explanation. And I happened, and this is just by chance, to be sitting the only the, at the center of the process. The only place I could have been that would have been maybe as good as would have been Michael Milken's junk yeah. bond department. Uh, but but sitting at Solomon Brothers in the you know in derivatives with John Merriweather as my boss. And right next to Louis Ranieri's mortgage department, I mean, that was about the center of the universe right then. Yep, and all crazy characters. Yes, and a lot of crazy characters. Well, from the late late 80s to now, what what, what are you currently focused on? What are, you, are you working on a project or, or three? Well, I finished on doing Project Win. I finished it in November. 
uh, came out in December, and I've been basically I, I spent a month promoting it, and then I, I what I always do is I take a month or two and just sit back and watch and think yeah. about it. Uh, I don't have I have some ideas now, but I, it'll be I guess another month before I start in on anything. I, I do think that. You don't want to get into the business of just linking books together like circus elephants, tail, the trunk. I think that it's nice to have time off. And I, it, it, I guess this is what I think is that you don't, I don't want to get in the habit of writing books because I'm just supposed to yeah. write a book. That I'd rather get – I'd rather wash myself, cleanse myself of the former book. So I have to kind of start all over again and ask myself, is this a book worth writing? And I'm not quite there with anything yet. I mean, you have such a strong brand. Would you ever branch out from journalism and writing and go into business in some way? Well, I have my line of cologne. You, you haven't bought that. It brings women to their knees, and it will kill small animals uh, if, if in high doses. Uh, and uh, so, but the answer to that, uh, ever I think, is there any business enterprise that I could be usefully yoked to? And nothing comes to mind, and I don't actually think that way. The truth is that I don't have any need for money. I make more of it than I am ever going to spend. So I don't have commercial ambition that way. Um, and the, the – I just – I think I'd be – I think I get bored with any business idea two months after yeah. I had it where I don't get bored with my writing ideas. So the answer is no. To the extent I have unslaked ambition outside of writing books and magazine articles is that I actually would like to create a TV show. And I have ideas for TV shows and I, I hope that – one day I get to do that. I have an idea. You can do a story on this this Forbes writer who has a podcast. It's really it, – it'll be a huge hit, I'm, I'm telling you. But getting access to such an exalted character is not easy. <laughs> when you're in the middle of a book, what is like – do you have a certain – are you a routine guy? Like if you're – when you're in the, like the, the middle of writing the Undoing Project, for example, what, what's a typical day? You usually take a child to school, uh, write for a few hours, uh, go exercise, come back, edit for a few hours – uh, and then whatever happens, happens. Some days I'll just get really absorbed in the second stage and I'll keep writing late. Um, but typically what I'm doing is setting myself goals to finish, uh, parts of the book date times when I have to be done. And so giving myself little deadlines, um, th- in this case, you know, it depends on the part of the book, oddly. I mean, I can remember the end of The Undoing Project. I had an experience that was unlike any, really anything I've ever written. The last 15 pages, I bet I wrote in two hours and I hardly changed a word. It just it poured out of me. And, uh, and that, so that happens sometimes. Sometimes it's like it takes, I'll, I'll spend days and days and days writing a thousand words and realizing that it sucks and getting rid of it. Uh, so it's just different. There's no, I, it, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like a, a, um, an efficient manufacturing process. It, it's something different than that. It's hasty. It's an- anxiety-ridden. And uh, somehow it gets done. And afterwards, I'm not quite sure how. And when you're done sometimes, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to do another like, – I'm exhausted. I'm not going to do another book again. Or is it – that's where that kind of time of rest and exploration is, is key. There are stages of getting over a book. If – I, I, I've never I – mean, I finished it and I loved it. I mean I just – I thought this is – it came out just the way I wanted it to. And then three days later I was tired of it. And then I had to go promote it, which made me from – took me from tired to yeah. sick of it. 
Uh, and now I'm in that state. I just like I don't want to think about it. Uh, and and what will happen is in six months from now, I'll be really interested in it all over again. I don't particularly like talking about the books. Um, it, it's every now and then when I'm working on something, it's useful for me to have a sounding board. But but it's and when they're done, they're really done. I don't go reread them. Uh, I've never reread Liar's Poker, for example. Uh, it just feels like that's done. Um, and what's going to come next? And and I don't think, oh, I want to write another book. What I usually think is, oh, I now I get to take some months off and think about what I want to do with my life. Do you drive your family crazy when you're in the middle of a book? So I think it would depend on who you ask in my family. <laughs> I bet the kids would have would sense to varying degrees uh, that I'm not paying quite as much attention. And that you know when you ever set when you're a 16 year old girl and your father's not paying as much attention, that's a huge yeah, opportunity. It's like, it's like so vacation. They, I think they like. Yes, they like the book. Um, my wife would say uh, that I probably don't listen to her. Even I listen to her even <laughs> less well than when I'm not writing a book. And uh, and it's nice to have me back after the book. I notice it. I do get it totally. I, it's not even. It's not absorption is not the right word. It's preoccupied. I, I go to bed thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. I'm making notes about it all the time. I mean, things happen. Like I got in the beginning of the Undoing Project, I got tossed up from a yoga class. The Bikram yoga teacher hurled me out of the class because I was making notes in the back. <laughs> and she said I was distra- I was supposed to keep my mind clean of thoughts and all that crap, and I never do. But you know, the thought when the thoughts get too valuable to 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 take the risk of forgetting them, or at least the, they perceive they're very. I have to scribble them down on something. So I have to sneak. I sneak my pad in with my in the in the back down my yoga shorts. <laughs> I hide it behind a pillar at the beaker so they don't see it. And when she's turned the other direction, I scribble crap down on the pad. Uh, that, so that I don't do that right now. Right? When I go to a yoga class now, I'm not thinking I can I can have I, I can be almost like a normal yoga student. But I'm working on a book I can't no do. More, no more contraband. I can because I read a lot of profiles here in the magazine, and you know I'm spending two weeks with a person on my brain, and I get sick of them. I can't imagine what it's like spending you know years with a. With a Danny Kahneman or with a, a, Brad, a Brad Katsuyama. So that's why I have to be very careful about what subject I pick because it, uh, that you, it, they have to be people you were willing yeah. to spend years with. Uh, so, I, so that's the there's – a, there's a, that's the, a filter that I, I don't even – I don't really think about it consciously. But at the back of my mind is do I want to spend years with this person or a year or whatever it's going to be? Uh, because if you get sick of your character while you're writing, yeah. it's over. But I've never had the experience. I never had that experience. I've been lucky in the characters I've picked. And real quick, I know you've given us a ton of time. I really appreciate it. You're a journalist, and I know you're obviously following uh, you're following the Trump world pretty well. And you write for Vanity Fair, and we all know Graydon just Graydon Carter loves Trump. What do you think of journalism <laughs> right now in terms of uh, you know what are you reading and wh- how is journalism doing in general with uh, with Trump and fake news and all that mess? I think it's doing great. Uh, I think my sense is that everybody's invigorated by the presence of a of a uh, fog machine. Like that, the more important it is for journalism to check the people in power from doing things that are dishonest or saying things that are untrue, uh, the more the more vital these uh, these these organizations feel. So, the, the in a weird way, the presence of fake news and uh, the presence of I mean, really, just almost. Un- relentless lying from people in authority is just great, great, great for the New York Times and Vanity Fair and 
CNN and all these places that Trump hates, uh, they're benefiting hugely from it. I mean, it might save these institutions. He's woken everybody up. Yes, these institutions might be saved by this. Now, uh, it's a it's a pity that it takes this to save them, but that's uh, you know, journal. It's a golden age right now for journalists. What do you read every day? Well, it changes when I'm when I'm when I'm writing when I'm writing a book. I have trouble reading. Uh, I don't read well. I don't read. I don't read books start to finish. But lately, I've had. Uh, I mean, it's been. I've been totally absorbed by things. I read a obscure but absolutely spectacular novel. Uh, I finished it about a week ago called *The Long Ships* by Franz Bengtsson, the only novel he ever wrote. And I don't have any particular interest in the Vikings, but it's a it's a story. It's a novel about a Viking uh, in the set in the ninth century. It's a, a very cl- close to the. To, I mean, it's someone who who knows the history of the Vikings who's written mm-hmm. the novel. And it's is breathtakingly funny and good. And then I, in the middle of another novel, I'm surprisingly enjoying because it is in many ways very experimental in the way the story is being told. Is um, uh, Lincoln in the Bardo, George mm-hmm. Saunders' novel, uh, which is uh, I can't believe everybody who's buying it is reading it because it's it's a complicated yeah. read in a way, but. He's very good. Uh, so I'm, I'm falling into novels now. I don't have any trouble. I, I'm back to reading lots of fiction. Do you read papers every day? I know. Do you, are you a, a Times guy? I read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the FT, and the Washington Post. I look at least look at all four of them every day. You get them in paper? Uh, only the New York yeah. Times paper. And I don't usually – I don't – only one every three days do I actually read that paper. When I do, I, I, I prefer it. If I just force myself to read it, it would be a happier experience. I see things that I wouldn't see online. Well, this is, this is great. Michael Lewis, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Take care, Steve. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. One million. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. So figure out what your next read is going to be. Download Fully Booked right now on the Podcast One app at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is... Tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. 
We have the photograph. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.